You're listening to KHOL, and this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, it's been three years since COVID-19 changed the world but it may have helped improve healthcare access along the way in Wyoming. Remote healthcare here accelerated by 10 years overnight. And that's really important, especially in rural places where there are a limited number of doctors and specialists. And later, the Cowboy State's beauty has inspired many musicians, but the vastness can also present challenges. Isolation is kind of crippling to the music scene in Wyoming in a way, but you know, it also breeds creativity. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for tuning in to Jackson Hole Community Radio. I'm Tyler Pratt. First up today, Wyoming is the latest state to ban transgender girls from playing on female sports teams. That law will go into effect this summer. Advocates say the debate has had real impacts on the LGBTQ plus community and left some trans kids feeling unwelcome. But KHOL's Hannah Marsbach reports their allies in Teton County are pushing back. Nestled in the snowy buttes outside Jackson, seventh graders Jack Carter Getz and Fiona Morgan are on their lunch break at Teton Science School's Mountain Academy. Fiona is on a hockey team. The social aspect is really important to me, at least. I would want everyone to be able to have that experience. Fiona and Jack have been rallying recently for a friend and other trans kids who will be affected by the sports ban. Equal rights! Equal rights! Equal rights! That's them in February, with dozens of protesters on the town square, when the legislature was also considering banning gender-affirming care for trans youth and barring discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation in some classrooms. Those bills failed, but back in an empty schoolroom before history class, Jack says they're upset the sports bill passed. A lot of my friends, they've just been just kind of exhausted because this is just stupid. We've been fighting this for so long, and just to see something like that get passed is just frustrating. They've been part of a campaign to send hundreds of letters to lawmakers and the governor. It was created by Cheyenne Sievertson. She's a local social worker, therapist, and community organizer in Jackson. She says trans kids and their families are having a really hard time right now. The discussion makes them feel like they do not belong and they cannot be safe here. Sievertson identifies as queer. She holds support groups for gender-diverse youth, and their parents, up to 25 families across the state. And she says kids are in crisis. It is already difficult to be gender diverse and much more difficult when members of their community or members of the community nationally are questioning whether they exist at all or whether they are able or should be allowed to participate in the community and public spaces in the same way. More than a third of U.S. states have passed bans on trans youth participating in sports, including our neighbors, Idaho, Montana, and Utah. Sievertson says playing on sports teams is critical for these kids and their mental health. It gives them a sense of belonging and community. 
And it can be even of more importance and more affirming of their gender to be allowed to play on the sport that aligns with their gender. Local activist Grant Gallagher agrees. He played soccer all through school. Sports were arguably the biggest thing in my life for most of my life. Wyoming's governor, Mark Gordon, has also championed the value of sports. In a recent letter, he called the ban, quote, overly draconian and that it's potentially harmful to kids' mental health. But Gordon, a Republican, still allowed the ban passed by the GOP-led legislature to become law. Gallagher says he thinks it's a political game. I think it's disappointing for the governor as an individual and our political system as a whole that we have to make those sorts of political calculations or that people choose to make those sorts of political calculations when at the end of the day, it's going to be some of the most vulnerable children and families in Wyoming that are going to feel the brunt of those decisions. Gallagher went to the Capitol earlier this year to protest the sports bill. He says a lot of the lawmakers supporting it centered their arguments around fairness and safety. One Teton County representative, State Senator Dan Dockstader, co-sponsored the bill. He said he heard strong support for the now law from across the state. But according to the governor's office, there are only four known transgender student athletes in Wyoming. Don't come up with a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. You're just hurting kids and just causing more stress and anxiety for kids that already have plenty of it. That seventh grader, Jack Carter Getz, back at the Mountain Academy. He and others have been writing letters to GOP lawmakers and the governor. But his friend Fiona Morgan says they have yet to hear back. I didn't know if they actually saw them or not, and I found that a little bit shocking that nobody actually responded to the emails we sent to them. But Jack says they're going to keep being loud and supporting trans kids. They're going through enough, as it is already. They don't need another thing to stress about and worry about. Jack and Fiona finish up their lunch break and head to history class, saying they'll be out on the streets again soon, waving flags, yelling chants, and fighting for trans rights in the state. Equal rights! Equal rights! Hannah Mersbach, KHL News. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. I'm Tyler Pratt. Hundreds of indie bands recently invaded Idaho as the Tree Fort Music Festival kicked off its 11th year in Boise. It's a four-day event full of music, but also at different forts for film nerds, drag enthusiasts, podcasters, kids, and more. Several Wyoming artists performed at this year's festival and caught up with KHOL music director Jack Catlin about how the annual gathering inspires them and how the Cowboy State shaped their musical identities. Um, you got the press pass, so you're good. Okay, cool. Thanks. As I arrive in Boise and walk into my third tree fort in as many years, the buzz in the air is thick and tangible as bicycles, strollers, and jogging fans pass by me in a blur. What followed was three straight days of pure enjoyment. First order of business, scope out the scene at Lost Grove Brewing, where this year's Wyoming showcase is held. It's put on by the state's art council and their creative arts specialist, Kim Middlestadt. 
Our goal is to bring Wyoming artists to a regional audience. I mean, we recognize the limitations that being a Wyoming artist has. I mean, there's lots of travel involved. There's lots of difficulties with making your tours work effectively. Middlestat says Treefort is a great opportunity to help Wyoming musicians network and increase their exposure. I mean, our long-term goal is that these artists are getting picked up, are getting record labels, are reaching, yeah, the wider scope of more than just what Wyoming has to offer. One of the six Wyoming artists featured in this year's showcase is multi-instrumentalist Reckless Rooster from Pinedale. He says it can be challenging to find bandmates. Wyoming, with the way it is, you know, it's 100 miles to the next town or whatever, so I know in my own music it's heavily influenced what I do to be a one-man band because Pinedale is so small and so isolated, there's not really other musicians to be in a band with. Rooster says he can tour up to 40,000 miles in a year, and it can be tough to find other musicians willing to commit to that kind of grueling schedule and the challenges of Mountain West weather. And then we have road closures in the winter and whatnot, so you know it makes it really difficult to get around the state to see other bands and artists and how they do things, and they frequently, and vice versa. Isolation is kind of crippling to the music scene in Wyoming in a way, but you know it also breeds creativity. And I think it's great that they're that they're bringing Wyoming artists out here to have that kind of exposure that we otherwise really wouldn't receive within the state. You know. At the showcase, I run into musician Bo Elledge, formerly of Jackson and one half of Canyon Kids, now making a name for themselves in Boise. Coming from Wyoming to play here is unique because you're used to all these small Wyoming towns. Well here, you know, it's got a city vibe, but it's also got a small town vibe. So it's really welcoming to small town bands and really anyone that comes through. It's just a welcoming city from like just a person to person or but the music scene's really friendly and welcoming too. So I'd say if you're trying to come over and play, come on, water's fine. Jackson-based bands Box Elder and Aaron Davis and The Mystery Machine are also featured in the Wyoming Showcase and play at different venues around the city during the festival as well. Box Elder frontman and founder Chris Archuleta is backstage at Boise punk venue The Shredder. Being from Wyoming, it's absolutely a small market. No, it's like not necessarily the biggest punk rock or indie rock hub in the world, but from what I've seen at our own shows is that it's needed, people want it. I love where I'm from. It's molded every single one of us into being the musicians that we are. It's so inspirational to be able to look out my front door and see the things that I see. Archuleta says the Wyoming wilderness has even helped him cure writer's block. If I'm just struggling on a lyric or something, I can get my dog and go for a hike. And by the end of the hike, I probably not just struggling with a lyric any longer, but I'll walk back out, get in my car with two verses and a chorus. Multi-instrumentalist Aaron Davis is backstage at Penn Gillies Saloon. He says the fest brings a lot of people together from small towns. It's a pretty incredible thing to have this many artists in one spot doing so many different things, not just musicians, but comedy and drag and film and everything. I look forward to it because it's one of my only times I get outside of our area. And so it, for me, it's special because it's like the meeting of the artist. And I think you always kind of need that gathering of the vibes a bit to continue doing what you're doing and, and keep the force of just being creative. After several days of festing at Treefort, I began the long six-hour drive back to Jackson, reflecting on my experience in Boise. 
There really was a communal vibe permeating throughout the weekend. Everyone seemed to feel connected as they performed their various different creative endeavors. And seeing thousands of people coming together within the city's open arms left me, and I'm sure countless others, inspired and hopeful for what's next. For KHOL News, I'm Jack Catlin. Somewhere out the lake, I put your heart to the table. Oh, visit the face of the feeling. The heart can bear a week, but is it worth If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Tyler Pratt. It's been three years since the COVID-19 pandemic took hold. And according to the Jackson Hole News and Guide, it's time to reflect. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach spoke to the paper's health reporter, Miranda DeMorais, about her recent story where she talked to health officials about how Teton County has weathered the pandemic. A lot has happened in these three years, and it felt timely to look back at how the pandemic impacted the county and what we've learned, what haven't we, where are we now, and what's coming. So looking at this three years later, how did we do? How did Jackson weather the pandemic compared to, you know, other places? The county health officials agree Teton County really was way ahead of the curve in terms of limiting early spread. In terms of our our death rate in Teton County for COVID, um, we were about five times less than the states. And Wyoming's COVID mortality rate hovers above the national average. So we're still substantially lower than the national average. Yeah. Why do you think that we had such lower rates here? After talking with Rachel Wheeler, um, the public health response coordinator, She said that we had the highest COVID vaccination rate in the state at 97%. Uh, She also cited our like healthy, active community as um, accounting for kind of our overall ability to fight off the virus maybe better than other places. And also our community's willingness to cooperate with CDC guidelines, which were reinforced by local health officials. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I know the pandemic escalated tensions about things like personal liberties, people thinking masks and vaccines are government overreach. In what ways did we see COVID-19 and vaccines get politicized locally? In the state's legislature, House Bill 66 was proposed, which would have banned uh, mask vaccine and testing discrimination, which looks at 
how patrons in the past had to show like proof of vaccination. So ultimately that bill was not passed. It died. But I spoke with Dr. Travis Riddell, who is another Teton County Health Officer, about this. And he was saying that It's disconcerting what we saw in Wyoming and in other states because it can decrease the ability of public health officials to institute emergency measures in the future should something similar to the COVID pandemic arise. And what kind of positive outcomes did we see from the pandemic here in Teton County? We saw A rapid acceleration of telehealth technology. Dr. Lisa Finkelstein, who's the medical director of telehealth at St. John's, said that remote health care here accelerated by 10 years overnight. And that's really important, especially in rural places where there are a limited number of doctors and specialists. And then some other good outcomes were jumps in Um, infectious disease technologies and response methods. And of course, as you reported, you know, three years later, we're seeing people like local comedian Andrew Munns is back performing. Our lifts are running again. So, Miranda, the burning question, is COVID over? Basically, the World Health Organization met January 27th in response to the third anniversary of their determination of COVID as a public health emergency of international concern. And Rachel Wheeler with the county health department sort of summarized that meeting as they're concluding that the virus is still widespread and is not considered seasonal quite yet. So it's fair to call COVID still a global pandemic. But, you know, there's been this great pandemic fatigue we've seen where no one really wants to talk about it or think about it. And the public health emergency declaration in the U.S. will expire May 11th. But at the same time, family members who are lost and close friends who are lost from COVID um, are still experiencing the effects. And those who can't smell or taste two years later are certainly still experiencing the effects. Yeah, it's hard to say it's over. St. John's um, still has... Uh, isolation rooms regularly filled and expect to keep seeing COVID patients as hospitalizations continue three years later. That was Miranda DeMorais, the health reporter at the Jackson Hole News and Guide. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. Across the West, there's a problem. There's not enough water to go around. And the water that does arrive often falls far away from where people live. That leads to tense conversations about how and where it should be used. A new project in Colorado is trying to bridge the gap, starting with the youngest water users. From KUNC, Alex Hager reports. How well do you remember fifth grade? The days can be a blur of fractions and recess, but there were always a few memorable ones that stood out. Today is one of those days at Basalt Middle School. There's a special guest, and the kids are learning about water. 
and I want you to repeat after me. A watershed, a watershed is where all the water, all the water flows, flows to one place. Megan Dean works with the Roaring Fork Conservancy, a local river nonprofit. In this classroom, the excitement levels are somewhere between field trip and substitute teacher showing a movie. Dean is here to help set them up with pen pals on the other side of the state. They start looking at their pen pals as uh, somebody that they can become friends with and somebody that they can share experiences with. And after learning and sharing experiences, it becomes a little easier to wrap your head around sharing water. You see, when adults have conversations about sharing water in Colorado and all across the Southwest, things get territorial. Right now, states that share the Colorado River are caught in a standoff. But when it comes to kids, Dean is hoping to set them on a more neighborly track. First, we spend a little time learning what water is used for. Cities, farms, habitats, and, well, just about everything. Just ask Cameron Hutter. I didn't know pizza required water. What did you think it was made of? I thought it was made out of dough. And we're learning another big surprise today, where the water comes from and just how far it goes. In this state, more than 80% of the water falls on the west side of the mountains. But more than 80% of the state's people are on the east side. So these kids, in two schools on opposite sides of the divide, will be trying to bridge it with their letters. At first, student Harper French reacts the same as a lot of adults who learn about that split. So they should thank us for sharing the water. But the whole point of this activity is to combat that mentality, making kids think about working together to take good care of the shrinking resource. French is already lining up the questions for his pen pal. Uh, they, they live in like a giant city and stuff. What is it like? Like we live in a beautiful place. I don't know if they do. So uh, yeah, I'd probably ask them about that. A few weeks later, I follow the letters on their journey all the way across the mountains to meet the other pen pals, this time in Aurora, just outside of Denver. I'm going to allow you to open your letters read them, and then we're going to talk about how you're going to respond to them. Teacher Karen Child is handing out brightly decorated envelopes from Basalt Middle School to her fifth graders. Mine's wrote, my name is Emily and I am a fifth grade at Bass Middle School. I live three hours away from Denver. Ooh, that's far. Malaya Moore and her classmates are learning about how their buddies use water. Mine said that she likes to go rafting. She likes to um, make like plant, like water plants with her mom. She likes to watch movies, and she lo- she loves love loves rafting. I think I don't know if I said that already. But there's a common thread. The water that Cole Walton and the Aurora kids rely on every day is the same water used by their pen pals. I learned that both of our water comes from the same place, which is the snow and the mountains and the streams and the rivers. And that fact is one Roaring for Conservancy's Megan Dean hopes will stick. They see kind of the baseline science and knowledge as something that's very understandable, actually, because they're not distracted from personal wants. And that, she hopes, will help shape a new generation of water users in the West. I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band, 
Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio.